My chains are gone. I've been set free. And I rejoice today over knowing that Christ has set me free and has given me hope and has given me a promise. And I look forward to what's next. So let me dismiss the children to Children's Church and then we will continue. It is a blessing to have our kids with us and thank you for allowing them to worship with us. They are as much a blessing to us as we are to them sometimes. So thank you very, very much. It is great to have each of you with us this morning. I don't know if you have enjoyed the current sermon series that we've been in, but I have thoroughly enjoyed preaching it over the last, uh, really, I guess it's been about six weeks now. Today we will wrap up this series on First and Second Thessalonians, and in particular we'll be in Second Thessalonians chapter 3 today. Um, if you would like, you can go ahead and turn over to that passage already because I'm going to give you a heads up. Uh, we're doing a little bit different. Normally, I will read just a couple verses, and then I'll talk about some, and then we'll go back and read some more. Actually, this morning, we're going to read the whole section uh, for us here just to get us started, and we'll be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 1, and we'll be reading through verse 15. This is what it says this morning. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. And pray that we may deliver, be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Let's pray for a minute. Father, I pray that you would add your blessing to this word, that you would apply it to our lives, that you would help us to see how this meets us in today's society. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, last week we talked about the need for personal and corporate 
prayer. There is great value when the church body comes together to pray, when we simply lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we bring our needs to him, when we thank him, when we spend time just in communion with God. And of course, that is important as a corporate body, but it is also just as important that we do so as individuals. It is something that Jesus modeled and also something that the Apostle Paul often taught on. It would seem that the church was very interested in what prayer ought to look like. And when you think about it, we're not all that different from the disciples. For the vast majority of people, even those who have been in the church all their lives, if the pastor called on you to pray, there would suddenly be a sense of discomfort. You may begin to sweat or feel the need to fake a heart attack just to get out of it. I read recently about an animal called a fainting goat. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. This specific type of goat is named quite appropriately. If you sneak up on them and scare them, their legs will lock and they will faint falling over on their sides. I think some of us might turn into fainting goats if I called on you to pray in public this morning. The reason there is such discomfort is often a feeling of inadequacy as we pray. I was with someone this week who was asked to pray, and at the end of the prayer, he exclaimed, oh, that was terrible. I guess he felt like he didn't say things just right. On the one hand, God doesn't care if you say things just right. He just wants you to seek him above everything else. If you mess things up, if you use a uh here and there, he's going to be okay. In fact, I may be a little weird, but I kind of think that God prefers the less polished prayers sometimes. We can become so good at saying a prayer in front of other people that it no longer comes from the heart, but it sounds so good. Our prayers become empty words that sound incredibly spiritual, but not genuinely communing with God. On the other hand, there is a healthy element of prayer that comes more and more natural to the believer as we pray more frequently. It's kind of like me helping Michael, whom you mentioned just a few minutes ago. I've been helping him with his baseball. Uh, he is, he's got a really strong arm. He's a good baseball player, hits the ball fairly well. Part of the reason for that, though, is because every afternoon we will go out and we'll throw and we'll hit. We've got a little net that's set up in the front yard, and every afternoon after he gets out of school, he has to do his homework, and then immediately after that, we'll go outside, and we will throw the baseball together. He will pitch. Usually, he'll throw with me just about 30 or 40 pitches, or throws, and then we'll switch, and he'll pitch to me, and then we'll hit for a little while. What happens is the more frequently you do it, the more natural it becomes. Well, the same thing should be true as we pray. As we continually seek the Lord in our own personal lives, as we pray, as we commune with him, it becomes more natural to where it just becomes a part of who we are. Such prayer is powerful and beautiful when all we do is connect with God in conversation. Well, today's passage begins with an invitation to the church to pray. 
But I want to start by pointing out the incredibly curious dynamics that are at play in this particular passage. As Paul begins, he asks the Thessalonian church to pray for him. Specifically, he's praying that God would give him fruit, that the message would spread rapidly just as it did when he was there with them, and that God would deliver he and his companions from evil or wicked people. This is the realization that there is power in prayer. But it's also the realization that Paul needs help. He's good. He's perhaps the greatest missionary of all time. He can debate with the most educated of people in his day. He can survive shipwrecks. He could even be bitten by poisonous snakes and still go on as if nothing ever happened. Yet Paul knows that he needs help. In the very next breath, he is speaking authoritatively regarding his expectations for the people. He's already pleading with them, please pray for us. Give us what we need. Pray that God would bless, that he would provide all of these things. Then in verse 4, he says, we have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. He is not beating around the bush with them. He's not saying the things that we've suggested to you. He's not saying that I, I, want, I trust that the Lord's going to change who you are. And, you know, maybe the things that, that we've talked about, it, it might be good if y'all made some changes somewhere along the way. No. He's already showed that, that he realizes, I need help. I don't have what it takes. But you know what? I know something that you need. You need to do as you've been commanded. There's no beating around the bush. He's not hinting that they need to do something different. He's not trying to gently persuade them to live godly lives. He is commanding them. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing good and you will continue to do the things that we have commanded. So on the one hand, there's a sense of shared responsibility in community. That ought to always be present in the church. There ought to always be the need for one another. So often we think that we're okay where we are, but the truth is we need each other. All of us need each other. It's part of the reason why we're instructed to do not forsake the gathering together of the believers. The fellowship of the church is incredibly valuable, and even if you consider yourself to be spiritually strong and very mature, the reality is that all of us need each other. There are times that our weakness will be more evident. But the fact is, it will always be present. We need each other. Paul takes very seriously the role that God has entrusted to him too, though. In essence, he sees the church as a family relationship. We talked a little bit about this last week as well. In a family, there must be healthy balance. We need each other to make up for where we fall short. Yet we also need people who will speak boldly into our lives and sometimes even offensively into our lives for the sake of pushing us to achieve higher expectations. Do you think your children like it when you fuss at them? 
sure husbands and wives never do that, but do you think that anybody likes to be fussed at? To be called out on something that they've done? To be held accountable? Nobody likes that. But the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And the same is true within families. Paul admits his weakness, I need you to pray for me. But he also is authoritative in his expectation of obedience. Did I waste my time telling you this is how you ought to live? Or are you guys actually going to do it? That's what he's saying here. I have confidence, though, that my God will help you to walk in obedience and to live in a way that honors him. Let me just quickly and simply connect the dots for you this morning. And in doing so, this will tie in very much with what I'm going to share later in the service. I love being the pastor here, and it is my goal that I teach authoritatively with you, declaring the truth of God's word and calling you to live holy lives. And let me make it really clear that that is exactly what the church is supposed to do. But effective church ministry cannot be done by only one or a few people. In other words, I need you. Sometimes it will include serving, sometimes giving, always prayer. So I ask you to pray that God would enable us to spread the gospel rapidly. And that God would protect us from evil and wicked people. And if you didn't know it, they are around. Pray that God would make this ministry fruitful and make it a blessing. And I trust that you will do more than pray. I trust that you will walk in obedience with Christ's teaching. That's what Paul is saying. And that's what I would say to you today as well. Well, back to our passage, Paul gets specific on one of the things that he's commanding them to do. In verse 6, he says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. He actually covers two items with this one statement. On the one hand, he is addressing how to handle those who are disruptive or divisive to the body of Christ. This is in keeping with what he wrote to Titus in Titus 3.10, where he said, Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time, and after that, he says, have nothing to do with them. It actually sounds a little bit harsh. Are you telling me that I shouldn't be together with the church? Are you telling me that I shouldn't continue to reach out to them and to love them? The problem is that so often an individual who is divisive can become contagiously divisive. Their constant division can become a stumbling block to the entire church. So what Paul is saying, warn them. Try to put a stop to it. Tell them this is not okay. Hold them accountable. If they continue to do it, warn them again. Do whatever it takes to make it clear that this is not acceptable in the body of Christ. And if they still will not receive it, have nothing to do with them. In other words, they're so thick-skinned and thick-hearted 
that you warning them again will not change who they are. Told you it sounds really harsh, but the truth is division has been a problem in the church for a long time. Why do you think we have so many thousands of denominations around the world? There has been division that has taken place, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes not so much. It's amazing the things that people will fight over. And it's amazing the things that we as the body of Christ will allow to divide us. They do not belong. If we all had the same foundation, which we say we do, the word of God is to be our foundation. If we all have that same foundation, we ought to be able to find common ground with each other. But unfortunately, division is something that has taken place. It wasn't that Paul didn't care about such people. He simply knew that such division left unchecked could become like a cancer that would spread throughout the Christian community. When you think about the external forces that were working against the church during that period of time, it helps us to understand exactly how important this really was. This internal division was significant. You see, people in that particular day and time, they're being arrested for their faith. People are being put to death for their faith. Yet Paul doesn't warn them against interacting with those outside the church. It would be natural to say that, try to avoid the Romans, because if you're around them, they're eventually going to get you. They're arresting people. They're going to have you killed. Stay away from those outside the church. That's not what he says. Instead, he focuses on those who are inside the church. It's because the biggest threat was not what took place out there, but what took place in here. See, so often we look at the things that are going on in our world, especially in recent months. We look at the things that are going on outside of the church, in the political world, or in big cities all across our nation, and the unrest that is there. And it is so easy to become so focused on all the things out there that we no longer pay attention to what's happening in here truth is we need to be one in Christ because there are evil things that happen in our world. There are those who would love to silence the church. The only way to keep that from happening is for the church to be the church that God intended it to be. We need to be a church that reflects who he is. The biggest threat to the church today is not on the outside, but it is on the inside. It is the compromise and the drift followed by division. How do we fight against that? Let me start by saying that we must identify who we are. We are a holiness church bringing a holiness message. That message is one of hope and promise, but it can never be watered down with anything less than conservative Christian values. We must determine today that there is absolutely no room for compromise. I would suggest to you that compromise has already begun to work its way into the church. I've told you on multiple occasions that I am a part of a couple of Wesleyan pastor uh, social media groups. They're closed groups so other people can't see and I won't tell you who says what, but it amazes me how many pastors debate whether or not I can support a candidate who supports abortion. 
tell you the truth, that has no room for compromise. But what has happened is the body of Christ has changed the playing ground. There was a, a point where we said, this is right and this is wrong. And somewhere along the way, we decided we need to meet somewhere in the middle. Well, if this is right, meeting in the middle means you're no longer this. You're not in the right position anymore. The body of Christ, there is nothing wrong with us saying, you know what, we have a lot in common with those who are over here. We were all created in God's image and we can connect with them in some ways, but this is still right. We do not compromise on who we are in Christ. But unfortunately, many of us have lost our identity. It happens denominationally, it happens with educational institutions, and I would say it happens with individuals who are in Christ. We need to make sure that we are the people that God has called us to be. But this warning is not just against those who are disruptive and divisive in our passage today. He commands the church to keep away from those who are also idle. Obviously, idleness shows up in multiple ways. There is an idleness that addresses the work ethic of individuals. There is also an idleness that addresses spiritual complacency. We'll look at both of these this morning as they continue to be a cancer inside the church. Notice what he's doing. He is addressing two separate cancers. One is this divisiveness. It should not be present. You're divisive because you don't know who you are. You don't know who's in charge. You don't know what agenda we're following. It's not okay. At the same time, you've got those who are in the church, and they, they may say that they're committed to this holiness message. But let's use a more direct word. They're lazy. Idle. They're not doing the things that they ought to be doing. And that, too, can become a cancer in the church. Let's start with this idea of secular idleness. This isn't about our relationship with God, although the argument could be made that such idleness does reveal a lack of spiritual maturity. In fact, we read in Colossians 3.23 that whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Poor work ethic among Christians gives the body of Christ a bad name. And it suggests to me that perhaps you're not really all that devoted to anything. Too many of us have claimed to be hard workers and then our lives show something very different. Not that long ago, I was asked by some soon-to-be-graduating college seniors regarding the most important lessons for someone who is about to graduate. I gave them two. Obviously, the first thing that I pointed to was their relationship with Jesus Christ. I shared that even if they become successful in the world's eyes, even if they become millionaires, if Christ is not central in their lives, then they will always be incomplete. Let me begin by saying the same thing to you. You may work really hard, you may be very talented, you may be very blessed, but if Christ is not in the center of your life, then you will always be incomplete. There will always be something that you're longing for, that you need, 
and it's never, ever enough. Jesus Christ must be central in your life. The second thing that I shared was that they needed to be set apart from everyone else by their work ethic. As students graduate from college, most of them are incredibly talented. They should be well prepared for whatever field it is that they will be going into. So how will they be able to differentiate themselves from everyone else? You think about it, all of them went through the same schooling. All of them have had the same teachers. All of them have done the same homework. What is it that will make you different from the other people around you? One of the things that make people different is their hard work. In our passage, we see Paul mention the fact that he has led by example in this area. He was not simply a philosopher. He was an active part of the community. Now, let me give you a little background here to help you understand the significance of this. First, understand that there has always been the expectation that if you don't work, you don't eat. It's one of the things that Paul says in here that had always been the expectation, especially among the Jewish people. Laziness was not an acceptable lifestyle among them. It's because they depended on each other. Each one was responsible to take care of themselves. And if they didn't do their part, then somebody else would have to make up for it. However, it was a tradition that a father would not work all the days of his life. The father would work hard to take care of his family, but he would invest in his children so that when they became adults, they could take over the family business. We actually see that uh, Jesus often is referred to as the carpenter's son. And one of the reasons is because he is connected with Joseph. And the idea was that as he is the carpenter's son, there will come a day where he himself will be the carpenter. He will replace the other. What would a father do after the family business had been passed on? Often he would become one of the elders who would sit at the city gates settling disputes and debating philosophy. Where do we get that? In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18 to 21. The Bible speaks of the parents of a rebellious son who were told to bring their boy to the city gate where the elders of the city would examine the evidence and pass judgment on him. Likewise, in Ruth chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, Boaz officially claimed the position of kinsman redeemer by meeting with the city leaders at the gate of Bethlehem. It was at the city gate that legal matters concerning his marriage to Ruth were resolved. So this was a common practice that individuals would take time. They would actually fill this role what this really means is you never really retire. Your role just changes a little bit. Let me suggest one of the problems we have in America today, and even in the church today, as many of us ought to be in that working stage of our lives, but we want to skip that, and let's just become the elders. We want to tell everybody that this is what ought to happen. We want them to think the way we do because we're smarter than they are. Well, actually, that's the way it's always been. We've always thought that. But we have platforms now that make it much easier to do it. 
Just to make clear, the Jewish people were not the only people to have such practices. Remember that as Paul visited Athens back in Acts chapter 17, he was brought before what was called the Areopagus, a group of religious philosophers who sat around and talked philosophy all day long. And today, such things still happen. For retired guys, it happens every morning at the local Hardee's. And for many others, it happens through social media. People sit around waiting for the opportunity to share their philosophy with whomever will listen. I'll post something and immediately people start replying to it. It makes you wonder if they even work or are they just sitting there waiting for me to post something. Actually, the truth is they're waiting for anybody to post something because they are not truly working hard. Please don't get me wrong here. It's not that social media in itself is a bad thing. It can actually be used for good. The problem is for many of us, we have become idle and we no longer are doing the things that we ought to do because we're distracted by some of these other things. And this leads into one of the reasons that it's so important that you work hard. Paul talks about those who are idle and they end up becoming not busy, but busy bodies. In other words, they start sticking their nose into everybody else's business instead of taking care of their own business. They've got the most time on their hands because they're not really working as hard as they claim to. So they're quick to share their opinions with everybody else that will listen. The next thing you know, they become a source of division. So keep away. Paul says you ought to avoid such people. Since we're talking social media, I will confess to you that I see very few posts on my social media. That's because although I'm still on your friend list, if you post anything negative, I probably have blocked you. Don't be offended. But I don't want to get into the junk. I would much rather be the man that God called me to be and not get caught up in all of the silliness. Remember years ago at a pastor's conference, we had a speaker who was with us. He was 97 years old. He was a retired minister. I don't even know why he was retired yet. 97, he said, plenty of time left. 97 years old, and in order for him to speak, he had to sit the entire time. And we actually had an open forum where people were able to ask him questions. Questions about his ministry, things that he wished he would have done different, lessons that he had learned throughout the years. And one of the questions was, what was your greatest regret? He said, well, I wish I would have read more. And then he stopped. He said, but what I really wish is that I wish I would have read different things. See, so often we get caught up in other things that don't matter. And the next thing you know, we're not focused on the things that we ought to be focused on. Too many times, other people become a source of division because we're looking at the wrong things. There are many other reasons why it's so important that you should work hard. 
And I don't want to go into too much detail about them right now, but consider the fact that one who is idle or one who is lazy, first of all, gives a poor witness to the watching world. Imagine you having an employer or co-workers who are watching you and they see someone who is lazy. They see someone who doesn't give their 100% to their job. They look at you and they say, well, that's what a Christian does? Actually, I think of Revelation chapter 3, where the church of Laodicea receives a letter from Christ, and they were actually called out because they're not hot or cold, but rather they are lukewarm. What's the problem with lukewarm? Jesus actually says, I want to spit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. The problem is that so often we use the name of Christ, and people look at us and they think, well, that's what it means to be a Christian. But if you're living a lukewarm life, you give a horrible example of what a Christian really is. So when we are idle, when we are lazy, we serve in many ways to give a false representation of Christ. Another reason why we ought not to be idle or lazy is it saps resources that are intended to help those who genuinely cannot do for themselves. The reality is there are those who, it's not that they're lazy, but they simply cannot do the things that maybe you can do. But if you become lazy, now we have to take care of you alongside being able to take care of others. The point is that the resources that you have been given, to whom has been given much, much will be expected. We think of that from a financial standpoint, but I'll take it a step further. God has blessed you with abilities and opportunities that you need to take advantage of. And if you do not, by nature, you will become a burden on the rest of society. You say, well, I don't want to be a burden on the church. I'm not just talking about the church. There are resources that are available outside the church. And the next thing you know, now we're still having to take care of you when you didn't have to have someone do that. And the last reason I'll give is this laziness, this idleness can also lead to a lack of purpose and productivity. When you get up in the morning and you have nothing on the agenda and there's no reason for you to do anything, why even get up? The fact is, when you have purpose, it's a cyclical thing. Then you work harder, and then because you're working harder, now you see more purpose, and well, it just keeps feeding itself. Now, I do want to take a moment here, and we're talking about this. Let's realize that there are many, even in this congregation, that are retired. Am I saying that as retired people, we've just become lazy? That is not what I'm saying. Actually, what I am suggesting to you is that your role may have changed, but retirement does not mean laziness. You still have responsibilities in the body of Christ. Many years ago, we had a... Uh, Christian artists come to our youth camp in North Carolina and they came and obviously we were a little bit disappointed with the way they had handled themselves. They were supposed to be there early to hang out with the kids, to interact with them. It was written in the contract. They'd be there at least an hour and a half ahead of time. And then afterwards that they would go to the different cabins with the kids and just spend some time with them. Everything was written into the contract. They showed up 45 minutes late for the concert. So we weren't even able to start on time. And the reason was they had some friends that were close by and they were just hanging out with them and got distracted. As soon as the concert was over, we had contracted for an hour and a half 
uh, concert. It turned into a 45-minute concert. As soon as the concert was over, they came to us wanting their check because they were heading out. My response was, actually, you've not met the requirements of our contract. You were supposed to be with the kids. You were supposed to do an hour-and-a-half concert. And the individual, I will not name the group uh, because they are still doing music. The individual said, don't give me that servant stuff. I've done my time. I don't have to do that anymore. Let me suggest to you that I don't care how much you've served in the church. We all still have the opportunity to serve. In the book of Joshua, Caleb is 85 years old. He has served the Lord faithfully, even when all of the rest of the Israelites, with the exception of Joshua, he has served the Lord faithfully, even when everybody else chose not to. They go in to take possession of the promised land. And he declares to Joshua, as they begin to divide up land, I am still ready to go, and I want this particular piece of land. I'm 85 years old, and I can fight just as well as I did 40 years ago when we first came to the promised land. Point was, he wouldn't allow age to be his excuse to become idle and become lazy. Now, he was smarter than what he was 40 years earlier, Actually, he does end up taking that particular piece of land, but what he does, he says, hey, I'll give my daughter to whichever one of you young guys can actually take this land for me. But he did not stop working. He simply chose to do things different than he did before. When we talk about being idle, this is more than just from a worldly perspective, though. There is also a thing called spiritual idleness. This isn't about being active in the work world or even active with specific areas of ministries. We should be active in those things, but we also need to be aware of the cancer of spiritual idleness. I mentioned Revelation 3 earlier. We see it echoed in Revelation chapter 2, this idea of spiritual idleness. In Revelation 2, 4, Jesus calls out the church at Ephesus, saying that they have forsaken their first love. It's not that they now disliked Christ, but he was simply relegated to the back seat. They've become spiritually idle. Jesus is still a part of their lives, but he's just one of the many things a part of their lives, as opposed to the one thing that they sought after wholeheartedly previously. I fear that that is something that will plague our church as well. Maybe it has already. Maybe some of the drift that has taken place has been that kind of drift. It is not okay for us to become spiritually idle. Verses 11 through 13 says, We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire in doing what is good. The goal of this passage is not just to say to keep away from these people, but you make sure you are not these people. You be a man, you be a woman of God who will actually reflect the work ethic of God and the passion that ought to exist within you because the Spirit of God dwells in you. I challenge you as a church today to be the church that God has called you to be. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, we are grateful, very grateful for your grace. The amazing grace that we sang about 
earlier, shows up in so many different ways. It is only by your grace that any of us are redeemed. It is only by your grace that any of us have the hope of becoming anything different from what we were before. But by your grace, we are saved. By your grace, we are transformed. By your grace, we have a hope and a promise that goes well beyond this life. Lord, I pray today that you would help us as long as we are here to be diligent, to work hard, to give our best, to honor you in the way we live. May our coworkers, may our employers see something in us that is different. Lord, may our families see something in us that is different. Help us to be so devoted to you that nothing else could satisfy us. Father, we praise you today for the grace that's been there. Just help us now to better reflect you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is a blessing to have you with us today. I apologize. I looked down just a few minutes ago and realized, man, I am well past my time preaching today. So uh, just deal with it and come back next week. I'll try to let you out on time. Thank you. <laughs>